I don't know how you spend a lot of your thought life, but I tend to think a lot about what would I do if I was in somebody else's challenging situation? Do you ever do that? I, I don't know what distracts you during worship. I don't know if you're thinking about where you're going to have lunch or your grocery list. I'm thinking about what happens if a shooter comes running down the aisle. Do I have time to push my wife to the floor and tackle Pastor Matt off the stage? Can I get out of the crossfire as he comes running down? That's the kind of stuff that distracts me during worship. I get distracted by the thought of uh, what happens if somebody's kid gets run over in the parking lot. We've been talking about that for years, haven't we? Why do you think I think about things like that? Because I know of things like that. I have no shortage of fuel to fuel my mind with spending tons of time thinking about, what if that was me? What would I do if that was me? Sometimes it reveals good lessons learned. Sometimes I, as I run through the scenario in my head, I go, wow, that's good. I need to remember that uh, because it'll help me in my future life. Sometimes it's humbling because I realize that I likely would have done far worse things far worse things. I think of uh, my mom telling me the story of in India um, seeing people um, collecting water out of the drainage ditch. And, and then, so what you do is you just take this water out of the drainage ditch and you just sit and let it settle and all the um, solids float to the top and then you can scoop all those away and then you have water that you can boil and drink. Never had to deal with that. How how much would I want to drink water? But other people have to deal with that. I think a lot of times you really don't know what you do until you find yourself in that situation. I know a guy, he got hired in the fire department with my brother. They were at the, I was in the academy with him, but he got hired in Renton. And, um, and he was a really, really good teacher. And his students loved him, but he wanted to be a firefighter, so he joined the fire department. And we were in the academy together. We did some training together. And it was getting close to the end of the year of our first year of probation. And um, I asked my brother, hey, how's this guy doing? You know, he's very confident, smart, smart as a whip, seemed very confident. Um, and I was like, no, he quit. I was like, he quit or he got fired? Because typically when you get into the probation, you kind of sometimes, if you're not making it, they give you an opportunity to resign because it looks a lot better than getting fired. That's what I think. It's like, no, he quit. Why? He couldn't handle the stress. Every moment he was at work, he was stressing about what was going to happen next. Every day he was off, he was stressing about coming back. He was super awesome at his job, but he just wasn't very good at dealing with stress that he would have to deal with in the job. So I, I don't think I have to elaborate too much on all the wild scenarios that you could probably come up with about what would you possibly do. But in this portion of scripture we're here in Acts... We can see where Paul and Silas have found themselves in. Let's look at Acts chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 22. Acts chapter 16, verse 22 through 24. This is where Paul and Silas have found themselves in Philippi. Then the multitudes rose up together against them, and the magistrate tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. Now, 
I think it's easy to say what we would do in this situation. I mean, we're all good Christians, right? We know what the answer is. We'd worship the Lord and the Lord would deliver us. I've never been thrown in prison. And, and as much as I think we like to pretend like it'd be such a cool environment because, you know, three hots in a cot and you get your TV and all this kind of stuff, I am willing to bet a lot of money that it's horrible in prison anyway in America. <laughs> but I don't know if you've ever seen that show, Locked Up Abroad. <laughs> I'm just saying... Being locked up in a dungeon, whipped, beaten, all that kind of stuff. Man, what would you do? Because I think this. I think past performance is indicative of future behavior. If you, <laughs> it's easy to say what we do, but when you were confronted with unjust and terrible circumstances in the past, what did you actually do? That's what I want to know. When you ran into hardship, when things got really rough, sometimes... Now, some people, things have never gotten really rough. So your definition of really rough is just the roughest thing you've had to deal with. For other people, it's been so ridiculous that I don't even know if I could wrap my mind around what that's like. But when you were in that situation, what did you actually do? Did you overcome? Did you praise? Did you worship? Did you complain? Did you run from it? Did you throw somebody under the bus? Because virtue untested is no virtue at all. I think I picked that up from C.S. Lewis. What that means is that you can have all the talk you want about what the right thing to do is. Because listen, right is right, wrong is wrong, that doesn't change. It's, there's no situational ethics here. If it's wrong, it's wrong. But it's really easy to condemn somebody else in their wrong behavior and say, you, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. You're just whatever. Maybe you're, you're just weak or whatever. But then that's just because you've never had that situation. And then you find yourself in a tough quandary of a situation and you start making bad choices and justifying it. Like you don't know what it's like. We find ourselves doing that because if you've never had tested virtue, the question is, do you have any at all? But let's look at Paul. Uh, let's look at uh, Paul and Silas in this Philippian jail. Uh, we're going to read the verses today are uh, Acts chapter sixteen twenty five through thirty four. This is what it says. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who, all who were in his house. Wait, I think I missed a verse there. What must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. 
Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. <clears throat> wow. There's three things in this story, <clears throat> excuse me, there's three things in this story that really stood out to me. The first one is this. I noticed the attitude in which Paul and Silas dealt with difficulty. And they've dealt with some difficulty. And this situation is pretty difficult. The attitude that they dealt with difficulty really stood out to me. Acts chapter 16 verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They got railroaded during the day. Thrown into prison. And now it's midnight. And they're singing praises to God. Um, one of the uh, officers at work, we were talking about the challenges at work. And um, there's challenges at everybody's job, I'm sure. But one of the challenges we have at my job sometimes is people's attitudes. And having the attitude about the work you have to do or about the problems and challenges you face. And really, attitude and perspective can, can really change things a lot in how you view things. So we were talking about, we just got a book um, that we're going to start using for leadership called Extreme Ownership. It's written by a couple of guys um, who were um, uh, SEAL team commanders in Ramadi. Um, and so one of them is this. And so he so shows me this video. He's like, hey, you got to see this video. And I thought, wow, this is so fitting for what I'm preaching on Wednesday. So it's called Good. Um, and it's uh, featuring a guy named Jock- Jocko Willick. He's the co-author of the book, Extreme Ownership. And the second book is called Dichotomy of Leadership. Both good books you should read if you're a leader. He was commander of SEAL Team, Task Unit Bruiser, during the Battle of Ramadi, which is the fiercest fighting that I think troops have seen since Vietnam. So pretty, pretty, well, uh, pretty well tested leader. And so he says this. He says, this is something one of my direct subordinates pointed out. He would, pull me, he would pull me aside with some major problem, and I would look at him and say, good. And finally, one day, he was telling me about something that was going off the rails, and as soon as he finished explaining it to me, he said, I already know what you're going to say. <laughs> what am I going to say? You're going to say, good. That's what you always say when something goes wrong. So I explained to him that when things are going bad, there's always going to be something good that will come out of it. Didn't get the job you wanted? Good. More time to gain experience and build your resume for the future. Got tapped out? Got beat? Good. You learned. (laughs) You see what this guy looks like too. My goodness. Got injured? Good. Now you can get some rest and regroup. Unexpected problems? Good. You get the opportunity to come up with new solutions. I don't mean to say something trite. I'm not saying a positive attitude will solve your problems, but neither will focusing on the problem. Accept reality, but focus on the solution and turn it into something good. And this attitude will spread throughout the team. Finally, if you can say the word good, you're still alive. I think of the context of the author and what he's seen and what he did. And it totally reminded me of the situation that Paul and Silas are in. It's an attitude check. Beaten up, thrown in jail for teaching about Jesus? Good. You have the opportunity to grow in your character. 
Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. Stuck in the inner dungeon with hardened criminals? Good. You can shine your light before a whole group of people that would never hear the gospel, possibly at all, before their death. You think the people stuck in the inner dungeon were were jaywalking? These guys are probably going to be put to death. So how are those people in jail probably going to be put to death, even the jailers at all, going to run into somebody who's willing to boldly preach the gospel to them if Paul and Silas didn't get thrown in the inner dungeon. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. (coughs) Unfair and undeserved circumstances, good. You get to grow in your patience. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work in you. Patience, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Paul and Silas accepted the reality of their situation, and they turned to God in prayer and song during it. You don't, you don't think they recognized the perilous position they were in? Now, our Christ-like attitude comes from focusing on Jesus and his present and future glory, not on our current circumstances. As hard as it is to do sometimes. My example, I had a job change that caused me two and a half hours of daily commuting. Good. <laughs> You now have uninterrupted time to listen to some good books that would challenge you to grow in the future. Yeah, sure. I could have read these books before when I had a better schedule, but I didn't. Now I have little choice in the matter. What a blessing. The Bait of Satan. If you have not read The Bait of Satan, write it down right now and go read it. It, is, it was written 23 years ago, I think, 96. But I have not seen it more timely than it is right now in our culture of offense. Yes. Basically, the book's about you don't have the right to get offended. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so mad when I listened to the first chapter of that book. <laughs> I'm like, nah, this guy, Bevere. But then as I started listening to his examples of what he had been through, I'm doing the same thing in my head. What would I do? And what I would do is not what he did. And I learned. I learned what it means to not take offense. I learned what it means to rely on God through challenging situations because I saw how he was doing it. I learned because he points to a book uh, uh, about the story of Joseph in the book of the Bible. Remember, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery only after they were going to murder him and decided it would be more profitable for them if they just sold him into slavery. Yeah. I'd never been almost murdered by my brothers and sold into slavery. 
God's Armor Bearer, another great book. If, if you want to be in a position in ministry, read the book God's Armor Bearer and get humbled and start over with your attitude. This book defines my ministry, what I do. It's like it was written for me. I got to listen to it at least once a year is a good refresh. I listen to a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Dude, dismantle every evolutionist argument. Darwinist, evolutionist, slam dunk. I can't believe those belief systems still exist. It's just pure ignorance. There's so much empirical scientific evidence that proves God and disproves those theories. It is a long, long book. But I got a lot of time. (laughs) I've listened to Mere Christianity, Peace Child, 12 Years a Slave, Alone with God, Extreme Ownership, The Dichotomy of Leadership, Fathered by God, the list goes on and on and on. I have listened to more books in the last two years than I've read in my entire life. Plus, now my reading time can be devoted to the Bible instead of competing with the Bible. See, all sorts of good stuff coming out of it. (laughs) Praise God for my Prius and my commute. (laughs) Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. I want to have a good attitude. One that recognizes the reality of the situation, but sees it as an opportunity to grow in my faith and trust God more and give him praise in the midst of all of it. I know, it's a stupid example. It's petty. I know you probably don't have petty, stupid examples that eat up all your brain time trying to think about how it has value. But that's me. I got to share what I know. You have to ask yourself, do you believe that God is bigger than your situation or not? I bet that Paul and Silas used the past faithfulness of God to encourage them in the present. I think of that story of Joseph. Uh, The way John Brevere talked about the story of Joseph and and the idea of being offended changed the way I looked at the Bible, uh, at that story, and made me go back and reread the story. That's what a good book will do. It'll make you go back and read your Bible. (laughs) So if you have a book that's like, hey, I'm relevant and the Bible's not, throw that book in the garbage. You don't even want somebody to discover it at the used bookstore. But if the book you're reading points you right back to the Bible... That's good. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Joseph, he was the youngest of some brothers. He got, uh, his brothers got mad at him because he had this vision that he was going to rule over them. And a dream. And so they tried, they were going to kill him, but then they ended up selling him into slavery uh, in Egypt. So Joseph goes off. He's a slave in Egypt. He's in a household. He gets uh, accused of a crime he didn't do, thrown into prison unjustly, uh, but he ends up, through his faithfulness and through how God uses him, he ends up basically running Egypt. He's second only to the Pharaoh. Basically, the Pharaoh has put him in charge of all the affairs of, of the government. And then, there's this huge famine that happens, and Egypt's the only place that has food, and everybody else is starving, and guess who comes to Egypt to get food? Joseph's brothers and brothers come. And so, that's one of those moments you say, well, what would I do? Now, now we'll see what happens. Oh, you're coming to me now, huh? No, that's not what he does. He does the opposite. He saves his family from famine. He actually brings all his family to Egypt. 
And they're living fat now. Well, they were for a while. <laughs> some leadership changes occurred and some things went the wrong direction. But this is how Joseph responded to his situation. Genesis 45, chapter, uh, chapter 45, verse 5 and verse 8 says this. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. He's telling his brothers. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Because if God hadn't sent him there and he hadn't had the dreams that caused Egypt to save up the food, they all would have died from the famine. So he's saying, don't be mad at yourselves for doing this to me. God allowed me to be here to preserve life. And verse 8, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Whoa! Mind-blowing. The, the garbage that he went through, and his perspective is, God sent me here. He had a purpose through all of that. And so I'm guessing that Paul and Silas are familiar with the story of Joseph and maybe reflecting on that portion of scripture to encourage themselves in this current unjust and unfair situation. You can look at you, you, me, we, can look at the past faithfulness of God as we see in the Bible to encourage us in our present circumstances too. There's nothing you have been through or will go through that hasn't already been gone through by somebody else. And there's many, many stories in the Bible of people who have gone through things like you or likely worse than you that you can draw strength from, the encouragement of how they dealt with it. There's a second thing I noticed in this section of Scripture. I noticed how God chose to bless the blessable. Acts chapter 16, verse 26. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and every chain was loosened. They've been severely beaten with rods, unjustly jailed. It's reasonable and likely for them to think that the next step is that they will be killed. It happened to Jesus. Why wouldn't they think that that was a possibility? Yet, there was no crying or complaining. They don't seem to be angry or bitter. They aren't wavering in their faith. But they're only showing resolve. It's easy to look at the story and go, Oh, they got thrown into prison and they were singing and the prisoners were listening. But if you really grasp the gravity of what's going on here, whipped beaten with rods, bleeding in the inner dungeon. Why do you think that the jailer had to take them out of there to talk to them? Probably because there's no light in there, or it's dark. Or I've heard uh, descriptions of, of these kind of prisons in the ancient world as being big pits that they'd have to lower you into. So maybe he had to raise them up out of the pit so he could actually go and talk to them. Maybe that's why Paul had to yell to them, Everybody's still here. I mean, think about this. Their behavior and attitude was honoring to God, and he answered their prayers. Isaiah 119, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. That's what God said. I think it's applicable to the situation of obedience, isn't it? What does that mean to you? To eat of the good of the land? If you're willing and obedient, 
That sounds like something good. Yes. Whatever it means to you in your context today, it sounds like God's saying, if you're willing and obedient, that's good. Yes. We see this happen again and again in the Bible and in our lives. Those who honor God are blessed. Pastor Todd posted something on Facebook a couple weeks ago that uh, I said, uh, God blesses the blessable. And somebody took exception to that and posted a bunch of scripture. I'm like, man, that's interesting. Yeah, God shows a lot of grace and mercy to the unblessable. Yeah, a lot of grace. Christ died so that by grace you could be saved. Yeah, good. That's great. But he blesses the blessable. Like, I'm not just saying like, hey, okay, you're saved. Good job. I'm saying he blesses the blessable. And it's clear throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament. And you can see it in people's lives around you. When people are faithful and obedient and pursuing God, they're blessed. But don't, don't get too sideways on what I'm saying. Because Paul and Silas are faithful. And they're in a dungeon right now. So... But I think about like this. This is what I always think about. Like, what if? What if the story went like this? Paul and Silas are thrown into jail and become angry and indignant. I'm a Christian, but I'm a table flipping Christian. They complained all week to the other prisoners and tried to convince the jailer just to let them go. Two weeks later, they're freed by the magistrate and they come out yelling, See, now what? I told you we were innocent. And then they sue the city of Philippi for damages. What if that was a story? Then... They go visit all their friends and other believers and tell them how God blessed them by freeing them from the prison. Really? Did he though? Their trial would have ended, but they would have learned nothing and God would not get the glory. Just because your trial has ended doesn't mean that God was blessed. Sometimes it just ends. You wait long enough, everything's going to come to an end. Matthew chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. But what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's just like with your own kids, or with the neighbor's kids, or if you've seen kids on TV... You want to do good things for them. I love doing good things for my kids. But I can't do it if they're acting like spoiled jerks. Man, I am such a softy too, man. I hate being the bad guy. And I would do things like tell them, if you will do this, then I can do these good things for you. I mean, imagine if the father said, if you will do these things... Then I will bless you. And when they dig their heels in and they don't want to do it, what are you supposed to do? You just can't. You say, I can't bless you in your disobedience. I'm reinforcing the wrong message. How 
can he do that? Yeah. We're creating God's image. If us being evil want to bless our kids and do good things for them, if only they would just do the minimum of obedience. Just don't make me look stupid. That's all I'm asking you. That's all I want. How much more our Heavenly Father up in heaven is like, if you would just stop making me look bad, I would love to bless you. What do you think the prayers of the prayers? What do you think the prayers of Paul and Silas were? What do you think they were praying about? Well, I don't know. I got some words from Paul. Let's see. Romans chapter ten, verse one. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That's Paul's prayer. I'm just praying that these people get saved. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge of all discernment. Ooh. That your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense... Till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Those are Paul's words. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, or verse 4 through 7. Chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He had to repeat it. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. I want the peace of God that passes all understanding to guard my mind when my mind wants to go down the wrong track and start planning my, my, uh, my plans for when horrible things happen. <laughs> like, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. It's interesting that, now this isn't him writing at this current situation because he doesn't stay in prison long enough to write anything, apparently, in this moment um, because he gets released. But... He is in Philippi. He wrote writing to the Philippians in the town that he's currently in. And he's saying things like rejoice always, be anxious for nothing, uh, in everything by prayer and supplication. And he's currently in jail with Silas praying and singing hymns. I think he's practicing what he preaches. I think I can believe him because he's backing up the things that he's saying. These are the words of Paul and the prayers of Paul. And what's the outcome do we see in this story? The prison shakes, opening the doors and loosening the chains for all of them. There was an apparent change of heart and mind or something of the other prisoners because they don't flee. Maybe it was Paul and Silas' display of faith and peace that had an impact on them. I don't know. The jailer and his whole family get saved. That's pretty good. Paul and Silas's wounds are cleaned and they're actually sitting at the jailer's table that night for dinner. Yeah. Quite a turn of events. Yeah. What it made me think of is don't judge the calling of God on your life by your current circumstances. Because it'd be easy for them at that point. It'd be easy for them at that point to say, we must have got it wrong. Because 
God called us to go preach the word. What are we going to do here in jail? But they're in jail with a bunch of people who probably never hear him preach the word if they just stayed in the temple. So it's actually created this opportunity to fulfill God's calling in their lives. Don't judge the calling based on your current circumstances. You don't know where it's going to lead. What if Joseph quit when things went bad? He had a lot of years to quit. He had a lot of years to just give up and just say, I'm done. Maybe I was wrong, but he didn't. Hardship is always going to be there. So you need to commit to praising God through those times. You just got to make up your mind right now that when hard times come, you're just going to praise God through it. That's going to be the trigger in your brain. Like, oh, this is horrible. This sucks. Oh, yeah. I'm going to praise him like Paul did. This is the third thing I noticed. I noticed the single biggest reason that caused the jailer to seek salvation. Let's look at Acts chapter 16, 27 through 30. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors were open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was sleeping. He didn't hear them singing, prayer, praying and singing. He was asleep. He didn't see that the earthquake had opened the doors. He woke up, saw them open, and assumed that everyone had escaped. It was because none of the prisoners had fleed. All were accounted for. That's what changed his mind. I'm sure all the prisoners were thinking about before Paul and Silas showed up was how are they going to get out of that awful place. Come on. Think about it. I I I haven't asked anybody personally, but if I had to guess, if it was me and I was in prison, most of my thoughts would be consumed about getting out. Yeah. And given the opportunity probably would take it now I don't know how many people are in the prison I don't know uh, what the condition of their minds or their attitudes are of the other people in the prison because it really doesn't say but what it does say is they sat and listened to Paul and Silas and then when all their chains were loosed and all the doors flung open they didn't leave kind of amazing A changed life changes lives. I don't know what their heart condition was after that. I don't know what their heart condition was before that. But what I do know is people who should have been running out the door the second they flung open were hanging out. So Paul and Silas showing up in jail, I would presume with a completely different attitude and outlook than everybody else who's in there, somehow... Between the time they got there and sometime shortly after midnight, changed the entire game for everybody in the presence. It's pretty amazing. John 13, uh, 35 says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Behavior. That's how they'll know. By how you act. That's how they'll know. 
Now maybe the jailer had heard what the possessed slave girl had said before. We see in Acts chapter 16 verse 17, um, the slave girl was going around saying, these are the men, the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Maybe he heard about that. Maybe he knew who they were when they showed up. These are the guys who are talking about the Most High God. And then maybe, just maybe, seeing them in action may have confirmed to him that they knew what the real way to get saved. Maybe they had heard these guys know how to get saved. And then seeing them in the prison and how they influence people was the trigger in this jail guard's mind to say, you know what, there may be something here that I'm seeing in their behavior that makes me want to give my life to Christ too. In verse 30, the jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer brings Paul and Silas home. They all hear the gospel and they all get saved. There was a a large study done in in Switzerland. The Swiss did it from 94 to 2000. Um, I read the report in the Christian Post. Uh, I'm just going to give you the brief version. In short, the study revealed this. It is the religious practices of the father of the family that above all determine the future attendance attendance or absence from church of their children. If a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful the wife's devotions, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If the father does go regularly, regardless of the practices of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the children will become churchgoers. I don't know how many people were in that large study, but that's a pretty staggering statistic. Ultimately, though, don't get me wrong, ultimately, children will stay in a church if they gain an authentic relationship with Jesus. That's the truth. That's why in children's ministry, you preach to them Jesus. You let them know their seniors in need of a Savior. How is somebody ever going to come pursuing the Savior if they don't know they need one? You don't pull no punches down. Amber doesn't pull any punches down there. You should listen to her. You're preaching to those kids down there. It gets real down there. Those kids know who Jesus is. And that's how they stay in church because they have a real relationship with the Lord. But fathers play an important role of getting them, getting them to that point. Godly fathers matter. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed the trend in our country, but there's a lot of cor- correlating graphs. The graphs of the destruction of marriage in our country, the absentee of fathers, the delinquency, gun violence, whatever. All these things kind of correlate I don't know, man. There might be something to it. So this jail guard brings them home to his family so that they could hear the word too and so they could get saved too. Almost as if like a father who gets saved brings his family to church so they can hear the word and they can get saved too. This church is good like that. I mean, I don't know what it's like everywhere, but it seems to me that if one person comes in and gets saved, they start inviting friends and family, and then those people get saved, and they start inviting friends and family. I'm thinking that's the way it should happen. I, I don't know if that's how it always happens, but, but praise God that, that people keep showing up here. It's good stuff. Now, the best part, Paul delivers a sweet and simple gospel to them in verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. Believe doesn't simply mean recognize the existence of. Come on, people. Read your Bibles. 
You need to believe he is who he says he is. That's the point. That's what you're believing. You're believing he is the son of God. You're believing he did die for your sins. You're believing he is the one and only savior. You're believing he is the only way to heaven. That's what you're believing. Not just believing that he he existed at one point. His household will be saved by their own belief. But as the father goes, the house goes also. John chapter 14 verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness, and with the mouth one confession is made into salvation. Of course, it's your honest confession, your honest belief. You can't, there's, I don't know why people think this. Maybe it's because they're not reading their Bibles. But some people seem to think that you can trick God into doing things. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. You say the right things. You say the right incantation in the right way. And and God has to do it. Because his word says, it's not the way it works. If you have any thought in your mind that that you can force or move or control the hand of God, just let that go. Like, take some deep breaths and start over because it's not how it works. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The jailer was shown mercy, his ill treatment overlooked. Did you notice that? They don't mention anything about it. I'm sure he wasn't being super cool to them when they showed up. They don't say a word about it. He was met with grace upon a sincere inquiry about the gospel. All of a sudden, none of that seemed to matter anymore. The jailer responded to the message. He was baptized. He started serving. Huh? And he rejoiced. It's interesting. Such a short little sentence. But you see this impact of the life change. He wanted to be saved. He brought them home. He was immediately baptized. He started serving them. And then he rejoiced at his own salvation. Your salvation story should have similar episodes within it. Maybe not all in the same sentence, okay? Grace, right? But maybe it should follow the same trajectory. Believe is an action word. Did you notice that? Believe is a verb. It requires an action Do you really believe it if it doesn't cause you to move? If you really believed it, it should cause you to move. It should cause you to react. It should cause you to to do something about it. Otherwise, you don't really believe it. If somebody told you that a train was coming and you didn't move off the tracks, I would say that you don't believe them. That's what I would say. So your belief requires an action. Will you respond to the message the way the jailer did? Let's bow our heads. Lord God, you are a good and gracious God. In this place today, if you are in here and you want to respond to the message like the jailer responded to the message, I want to give you the opportunity to. Because if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, it's going to take some action. 
You have to repent. You have to accept that gift of grace as forgiveness. And if you want to do that for the very first time tonight, if that's you tonight, you're like, I'm cashing it all in. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus for the first time. We want to pray with you. If that's you, would you just raise your hand at me so we could pray with you? Anyone? No better time, no better place. Awesome. Now, if you're in this place and you realize that you haven't had this attitude like Paul and Silas, that you've been approaching your problems in an ungodly way, I want you to repent of that tonight. I want you to have a conversation with God and repent of that and go out of this place with a new attitude and see how things are good because you have the opportunity to glorify God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. I just give you all the praise and glory, Lord God. Lord, I pray for myself that I can always have a good attitude. Lord, I pray for for all of us that uh, whatever you imparted into us tonight, that we would not let that go, but that we would carry that with us and that it would change us and that our belief would be an action word. We love you, Lord. We give you praise and glory in your holy name. Amen. Hey!